0: ...to the final car of the subway train because it's the one with the fewest people. In short, it's for those who aren't in a hurry, those who think before they act, those who actually enjoy exercising their brains. And to stay in character, we really should begin the program by talking about folly, a word we capitalize. It's what we're actually all about, once you get past the juggling balls, the pointy caps, and the red and green checkered pantyhose. Foolishness, as we define it, is not a luxury. It is a necessity. It may take a fool to notice this, but despite the continual advances in knowledge earned through scientific experiment, archaeological discovery, and globalized computer networking, one thing that has assuredly not increased over time is the collective true wisdom or common sense. Good, straight wisdom is a dear commodity. Benjamin Franklin had it, for instance. A glance through poor Richard's almanac reveals a few of his wonderful quotations. Three may keep a secret if two of them are dead. He that speaks ill of the mare will buy her. He that's content hath enough, Franklin wrote. He that complains has too much. What makes these aphorisms tokens of true wisdom is the way they contradict our basic instincts and expectations. A fool has no quarrel with this wisdom. In the end, every great investment method succeeds not because of its numerical gizmos, magical formulas, or other assorted whiz-bangs. Rather, it succeeds by using some of the very common-sense wisdom we're talking about. Remember, dealing in money, the investor constantly must avoid his own instinctive temptation toward fear, on the one hand, and on the other, greed. Fear and greed will ruin your investment returns. It is perhaps an underappreciated trait of great investors that in putting up consistently superb investment returns, they are demonstrating their relative imperviousness to many of the less optimistic aspects of human nature. This, then is the true wisdom, to resist one's baser instincts. Another form of wisdom, however, is alive and well, and that's conventional wisdom. It is this counterfeit and useless form of wisdom, the conventional or worldly wisdom masquerading as the real thing that has roused fools throughout the ages in a call to arms. Follow your instincts. Just do it, and... Because you deserve the very best, have been among our most popular advertising slogans. Even more disheartening, the means for the distribution of conventional wisdom are more powerful than ever before, thanks to the mass media. Never in the history of the world has any tool had the power to create so many like minds, as is television. This is obvious, commonplace. What is not immediately so obvious is how bad so much of the thinking being inculcated in the minds of Americans is. The investment world alone is full of it. Over financial television and in magazines and newspapers, we are constantly exposed to experts who are actually there to tell us where the market is headed. And yet no one has ever consistently accurately predicted the direction of the stock market. Anyway, what results is a large segment of the population that is extremely receptive to the repetitive, conventional pablum that the mass media features because they believe that conventional wisdom is wise. That's why, for market researchers and brokers and financial planners, these people are the easiest and the most profitable game in town. One can learn a great deal from the wise, though. In fact, the careful investor can learn so much through a brief analysis of common human error that we can't resist putting it right here up front. Let's examine the two brightest pots of gold that marketers try to convince us we will find at the end of the rainbow, if we'll only just do it. Wealth and security. Let's take wealth first. Everyone wants to be just a little bit richer, right? We've just about never met anyone who thought he had enough, whether we're talking about billionaires or mendicants. In the investment game, this leads people to take stupid gambles unsophisticated first-time investors almost instinctively swing for the fences. They figure the fastest way to make ten times their initial investment is to buy a stock at $5 per share that might go up to 50 rather than buy a stock at $50 a share that would have to hit 500 In fact, perhaps one of the few negative side effects of Peter Lynch's excellent book, One Up on Wall Street, is that he induced a generation of readers to shoot for his fabled ten-bagger. That is, a stock that makes an investor ten times her original money. Many people shooting for ten baggers wind up buying pathetic penny stocks, sold to them by people who don't have their best interest at heart, even though Lynch is the last one who'd ever advocate such a decision. Our natural human instinct is toward greed. It is this very instinct that one must resist in order to become a good investor. Fortunately, you now have some fools on your side who are aiming to help you do just that. Opposite wealth, this instinct toward greed, however, is another gorgon from which to avert one's gaze, and that's security. This one seems, on the face of it, to be far less threatening or objectionable. But chasing security is no less deadly a pursuit, akin to inhaling carbon monoxide slowly in sufficient quantity to bring about your eternal rest. In our first ever issue of the Motley Fool newsletter, we printed this contrarian line, to which we still very much subscribe. Quote, The least mentioned, biggest risk of all, is not taking enough risk. End quote. Portions of the investment community today are infatuated with risk avoidance, or risk aversion. The primary aim of investing, these wise ones tell us, is safety holding on to your precious dollars. Whatever happens, you don't want to lose what you've already earned through the sweat of your labors. The possibility that one might actually make good money sometimes does not seem to enter Wall Street's thinking, among the more respectable element, anyway. Now, since we advise whole hog investing in the stock market for long-term investors, I do need to propound two things about playing it safe foolishly. First is, invest money that you can afford to wait on. The stock market is risky. We like that very much. It helps us make money, because you almost never get something for nothing. But over a given period of time, your stocks could get mashed. So invest money that you plan on keeping in the market for at least five years. We recommend a lifetime. Second, invest in good companies. We buy stock in companies that dominate their industry, companies that have a sustainable advantage over their competition, companies featuring honest and efficient management, and a bunch of other yardsticks offered later in the program. And that's about it. I've explained who we are and told you some of what we believe. Now let me show you why you should join us online, if you haven't already. Perhaps the first true benefit of being online that we ever encountered was the ability to type in our own trades in our own brokerage account. Discount brokers like Charles Schwab championed this drive to introduce hands-on tools for the individual investor, and deep discounters like Daytech and Ameritrade soon drove commission rates down below $10 a trade. Suddenly, the power for initiating trade executions was in our hands. Our interest in the online world had begun. Supplementing online trading is real-time investment information, including stock quotes and company news, which brings the most important and interesting financial information to people well before their morning paper ever arrives, assuming they still subscribe to one. Another great thing about the data available online is that good services update their research data every day. Data like earnings estimates and other fundamental financial statistics, putting that information right at your fingertips. The most timely info no longer appears in your printed monthly or the Friday night stock recap on Wall Street week. Nope, it's all going online, and most of it is free. As an investor interested in stocks or funds, By tapping into something like our website at www.fool.com, you can, with the help of your fellow investors, stay as current on your own holdings as you desire, daily, weekly, or every hour on the hour. Once you're online, we doubt you'll ever turn back. Now that you know where to go and how to get there, let's begin at the beginning and talk a little bit about mutual funds. As we entered into the 21st century, mutual funds were growing at a phenomenal rate. In 1980, over $145 billion was invested in mutual funds. At the end of 1999, 20 years later, U.S. income, equity, and bond funds held almost $7 trillion in assets, an annual increase of 23%, twice the industrial growth rate per year over the same period. And total assets held in mutual funds had doubled in three years. That's unbelievable. But why do Americans choose mutual funds? Well, probably because mutual funds seem safe, understandable, trackable, and well-marketed. And funds can be held accountable. They can be monitored daily, weekly, monthly, and annually against the market's average performance. Many investors just plunge their savings into mutual funds in order to avoid one of the financial world's less pleasant relationships, that between the full-service broker and the individual investor. Invest your money in a mutual fund with clearly defined costs, and you need fret no more over fair commission rates, or whether your broker is overactively trading your account, or how your portfolio is stacking up against the competition. Any fool, however much bewildered, knows that most brokers have traditionally been rewarded for how often they trade, not how well they do it. It's a preposterous model, and the chief reason that Americans will continue to move money away from investment firms into mutual funds. We prefer mutual funds with no loads. And let's talk about that word load. You may have heard that before, the idea that a single mutual fund would have a 3% load. What is that 3%? That's 3% of your money that's being paid simply as a sales commission to the broker who sold you that fund. That's the load, and we do think it's quite a load. Let's be very clear on this point. There is no significant difference in the overall performance between load and no-load mutual funds. Given that, would you rather save the 3% yourself? I think you would. The future obviously lies with no loads. And by virtue of their diversification, mutual funds are perceived to be less volatile than the average equities portfolio of a private investor. It's calming to know that you sit alongside thousands of others, owning minute positions in hundreds of companies. Assuming that you don't have the time outside your work and family life to scrutinize dozens of stocks, mutual funds have to look pretty darned enticing. And of the options we've discussed so far, the best alternative to sitting through brokerage cold calls during dinner, spending weekends digging into financial statements, and suffering $3 penny stocks that turn nest eggs into eggshells, so far, the best alternative is the mutual fund. But if your pile of savings isn't at least mimicking the stock market's average return, as measured by the S&P 500, after the deduction of all costs... You've blundered as an investor. And it's on that note that we move forward toward what must seem like unlikely advice. Maybe you should avoid mutual funds. It's the most damning statistic in the world of finance. Lipper Incorporated reports that over 80% of all mutual funds underperform the market's average return each year. Whether you're looking at 5-year periods, 10, 15, or 20-year periods, open-end equity funds consistently lose to the market's average, 80% of them. Consider, too, that the results don't count the short- and long-term capital gains taxes that mutual funds foist off on their customers every year as they churn their own portfolios. Nor do those results count any load that funds often charge for the privilege of managed mediocrity. Imagine that. 80% of all those oft-quoted professionals in their wingtip shoes with hundreds of millions or billions of dollars to invest, losing to the market average year after year after year. Think about the effect that a mutual fund's underperformance has on your returns. Say you put $10,000 in a fund that falls 1.2 percentage points short Of the S&P 500's average 11.2% return every year. Tack on another point for fees and another for taxes. That gives you an annual return of about 8%. Over 30 years, your mutual fund will be worth just over $100,000. If instead you'd put that $10,000 in an index fund, its value would exceed $220,000.